Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage, and you are listening to Newsbeat Podcast. Hey, everyone. Manny Faces here, the producer and host of Newsbeat. Thanks for joining us for another episode. This one's interesting, and it hits close to our hearts because we're talking journalism. This critical democratic necessity continues to be under a multi-pronged attack. Now, we've discussed this in our prior episode, Enemy of the American People, the U.S. government's war on journalism and press freedom, which you should definitely check out if you haven't yet. But unfortunately, man, it's still hot out in these journalism streets. We've got Trump and dictators across the globe doing their very best to kneecap, undermine, a sideline, a silence, and sow distrust among the populace about its veracity. So they can do whatever they damn well please with impunity and without accountability. We've got propaganda sites and armies of trolls injecting countless bogus stories into social media feeds and spreading hate-filled disinformation to further the agendas of the power elite. We've got more and more legacy outlets with long histories of investigative journalism, such as the alt-weekly Village Voice and even the New York Daily News, for example, cutting staff and circulation or going out of business entirely, with more than 2,100 journalists losing their jobs in the past month, mostly at Huffington Post, Vice, and BuzzFeed. We've got the industry's inability to navigate or capitalize on the mass exodus of readers to online news sources. We've got corporate mega companies and hedge funds, hedge funds, continuing to buy up newspapers and media outlets, consolidating disparate voices, creating monopolies, strangling diversity, and essentially controlling how and what millions of people across entire regions of the country are told is news. We've got the slow, torturous death of local outlets, perhaps the most important source of information for the public. I could go on and on, but I don't have to, because in this extra special extended episode, we asked some of the most relevant journalists and editors spanning all corners of the industry today, from ink-stained mainstream broadsheets to social media-savvy digital natives and beleaguered alternatives to resourceful independent reporters to weigh in and define the current state of journalism for us. What we got was a diverse, unfiltered, and wide-ranging assessment of this vital bedrock of democracy, the free press. Passionate, raw, at times frankly depressing, while at others damn well inspiring. At its core resides the unapologetic, undying blood oath devotion ingrained within the DNA of any true journalist to report and disseminate the truth, unadulterated, unmolested, and without prejudice. To serve as a voice for the voiceless, a light eradicating darkness, and in defense of the people. Now, our incredible guests this episode include social justice advocate, writer, consultant, educator, and speaker, Shanita Hubbard. I think the media certainly fails at conveying a message on what life is like for black and brown people. Margaret Sullivan, media columnist for The Washington Post and former New York Times public editor. One of the things that's really troubling about the media ecosystem right now is the decline of local news. Ben Smith the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. You know, you're not just trying to do the best story for your publication that day. You're trying to do the best story on the internet that week. Journalist, activist, and artist Abby Martin, host of the investigative documentary and interview series The Empire Files, which was shut down due to U.S. sanctions against Venezuela. If you don't have a free and open media to tell these stories to, to get the information to people, it doesn't matter what your issue is. And Chris Ferrone, a journalist, author, editor of Alt Weekly Dig Boston, and co-founder of the Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism. We cover things that aren't being covered, and we cover things that are being covered, but that we don't feel are be- is being covered adequately or accurately. And translating all of this into a seismic collage of hip-hop, rock, funk, and punk, 
are our extraordinary musical guests. Newsbeats, artist-in-residence, Brooklyn-born hip-hop recording artist Silent Night, and truly explosive fusion group, The Band Called Fuse. Alright, here it is. This is The Truth Hurts, journalism's battle for justice in the digital disinformation age. The current state of journalism is alarming, and it's alarming for a lot of different reasons. In one of my political science classes, I talk about media literacy. I jokingly tell my students all the time that somebody's going to put this on my tombstone one day that media literacy is just as important as being able to actually read. I don't have the power to walk around with people and and serve as a pop-up blocker and say, hey, this is not valid. Hey, you need to question this. Hey, think deeper. But I'm really concerned because as consumers, we're taking information on face value at a time where we are living in a 24-hour news cycle. And that combination is really alarming. How does America get its news? How does it know who or what to trust? Traditional journalism is losing its power to the internet and the echo chamber of social media. There are two Americas now, each listening to its own preferred news sources. What it means is that there are people on the other end, journalists, whether you're full-time or freelance, who are under the pressure to produce constant stories. The deadlines can be pretty intense sometimes. Sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's two days. And then given what's happening in our political climate where it's changing so much, every day there's something crazy to cover. We have major breaking news right now. We want to get right to this breaking news at this hour. Michael Cohen, President Trump's former attorney, has just left the courthouse. Paul Manafort faces the next decade in prison. The Justice Department has just named a special counsel in the Russia investigation. Major development in the Russia investigation. In the Southern District of New York and Lower Manhattan. Michael Flynn, President Trump's former national security. After a guilty verdict for multiple financial crimes. been charged and will plead guilty. After pleading guilty. Lying to the FBI. I think the way the media covers Trump is pretty dangerous. A lot of times people are failing to, my grandmother may say, just call a thing a thing. People are failing. They're giving it really cute, fancy nicknames. They'll say things like, uh, it seems like Trump omitted to the complete story on this as opposed to just saying the president of the United States stood before the people and told a lie. And this is how we can prove it. It's very dangerous to not do that because not only is he the president, but people are believing this information, right? They're believing these things. And you hear this narrative repeated. We heard it during his campaign as far as, oh my gosh, rapists are coming in from Mexico and they're really harmful. And you see that domino effect. You see people really believe in this and say that. The Pittsburgh shooting suspect's hatred of Jews merged with his hatred of immigrants to deadly results. He called migrants invaders, using the same dehumanizing language that's been saturating right-wing radio and TV. This is an invasion. This invading horde. This is an invasion. We saw children being snatched at the borderlines and put in cages. We need more bold journalists willing to say, he's a liar, this is harmful. October 22nd, 2018, declared openly that he is a white nationalist. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. I should have sounded the alarm. There should have been stories after stories after stories unpacking how Hitler was able to come to reign by using that same rhetoric, right? Not propaganda, not fear tactics, the really deep investigative journalism to show how that rhetoric has been harmful before. And let's talk about where this can be going now. I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a 
One of the faults of the news media in general, not just about Donald Trump, but this is a long-standing fault of ours, is that we're easily distracted and we don't always focus on substantive issues. We tend to get involved in what's the big, sexy story of the day. And then we also tend to tire of subjects quickly. You know, I've certainly seen that with coverage of Trump. Just to give one example, let's look at Hurricane Maria and the response to it by the Trump administration, FEMA, and also the president. There was coverage of the fact that the response was very flawed, but I think in general, we lost interest in that story way too early. And so a lot of Puerto Rican people who are American citizens, after all, still didn't have power. They still didn't have a lot of services, but we had moved on because maybe there was a new tweet or maybe there was a new dust-up of some sort. And Trump is very, very good at directing the show of the day. I think our responsibility is to be more steady, more skeptical, and more focused on what is truly important. Or they really wanna stop the presses, huh? Said a president didn't run, uh, pathetic. The president got his precious feathers up in a bunch. Delicate, unintelligent, desperate, uh, I could keep hacking in these additives cause there's never enough. Disastrous, kneecapping and gagging, taking away passes. Then you wonder why people call you a straight fascist. Pay out stashes so you don't get too embarrassed. Plus the cases of harassment, false flags and distractions. What about your taxes? What about Flint? What about Puerto Rico? You rather talk about yourself all in your tweets though. And we go and spend the whole next day getting PO'd. Either that or get some cheap loads out of the Cheeto. Maybe I spoke too soon. Maybe you know what you do. Maybe I'm only a fool for not noticing too. Am I? Every story is about you. It's like somehow we got the news, but without news. Huh. We were born very fully out of the social web and out of the, you know, 2011, 2012, somewhat utopian vision of how social media was going to change media first and then also journalism. And obviously a lot has changed and evolved, but I think the core in our DNA is a sense that you can take the best values of traditional American, fair, aggressive, independent reporting and discard a lot of the forms and the mediums on which they're printed and broadcast and think about how do you do that kind of journalism in a way that's really native to these new media. We definitely were able to take advantage of this these explosive growth of these social platforms. For news, that was Twitter, first of all, and Facebook. For other kinds of media, it was Pinterest in particular. And to spread globally with those platforms by doing the kinds of stories that would, you know, really spread on those platforms. All right, let's face it. This dress needs no introduction. Thanks to BuzzFeed, the debate over the colors of the dress blew up the Internet on Thursday night whether that's like an entertaining list of animals who are disappointed in you on Facebook or a political scoop, which can blow up Twitter. I think a lot of the incentives for journalists on those platforms really line up with what you want to be doing. Big original stories that tell people something they didn't know, have a real emotional connection that they want to share. There's obviously a dark side of that. You can also, and you see you know, a whole range of places spread on social media by making up stories that were false that the audience wanted to believe. But I think that you know, that we sort of took advantage of those platforms to do, I hope, really strong original journalism. And those platforms really 
don't favor boring commodity stories that everybody else has, which reporters don't want to do anyway. In this incredibly crowded media space where everyone is competing against everyone else all the time in these centralized platforms, the stuff that breaks through is often the biggest story, the story that has the most work in it, the story with the big revelations, the story that's best crafted. The bombshell burst Tuesday evening when CNN reported the president-elect and President Obama were briefed on the matter last week. The report included unsubstantiated claims that Russian intelligence compiled a dossier on Mr. Trump during visits to Moscow. The website BuzzFeed then published a 35-page cache of memos from the alleged dossier, including a claim of sexual activity caught on a Moscow hotel room surveillance camera. Overnight, a new report in BuzzFeed claiming President Trump directed his former fixer Michael Cohen to lie to Congress about negotiations for a Trump Tower in Moscow. You know, you're not just trying to do the best story for your publication that day. You're trying to do the best story on the internet that week. And that's a really high bar. And so in that context, I think it often makes sense to invest a lot in huge stories. Because investing half as much in a story that is half as good doesn't get you half of the impact. It gets you one one hundredth. In some ways, classic, huge, you know, ambitious, aggressive investigations are the kinds of things that stand out in a very crowded environment. It is interesting, though, to see that when you do stories about politics, about Trump, about the White House, about the midterms, broadly, Americans are so totally divided and are just looking for information that confirms their biases and are very quickly to dismiss something they don't like as fake news. When you step outside that sphere and do an expose, a a psychological um, hospital, that dynamic goes away. Like people react to it the way, like normal journalism. They believe the sources in the story. Their partisanship doesn't trump their ability to understand real things that affect real people. And I think to the degree that there's anything encouraging happening, it's that it's that, that contagion. And, and often the target of an investigation like that will try to sort of use Trumpian tactics and say, this is all fake news. And that doesn't really work. Throughout its history, America's leaders have echoed the mantra that it is a beacon of freedom and equality, that its actions abroad are based on democracy and morality, and that it's the greatest country on earth. America's actions, we've been told, have been for the greater good. That its citizens are in this together, united under the banner of one nation under God. But history tells a different story. I started off as an anti-war activist. I wouldn't really have called myself political in high school. I was just generic and ego-driven, like a typical suburbite American girl. Um, It wasn't until I went to San Diego State and really just threw myself into studying sociology, political science, and really having kind of a crash course in U.S. imperialism, essentially the effects of what global capitalism has done to the rest of the world, Um, especially when it in regards to militarism, how much the U.S. empire and its military offshoots essentially eviscerated culture, eviscerated the environment, and destroyed societies all over the world. We're talking about an empire that has 900 bases, not including the lily pads that the Pentagon can't even account for, military personnel in every country. So I was just stunned, to say the least. As we know, five or six media corporations now own and and control 90% of everything we see here in the world. Of course, corporate media all over the world acts as a proxy for corporations to basically make money, just like every corporate bottom line. For the U.S. and Western powers, it functions as a state media apparatus to be weaponized for propaganda. Realizing this, it was very stunning, and I thought, wow, well, it doesn't matter if my big issue is war or militarism. Um, It doesn't matter if your issue is food or animal rights. If you don't have a free and open media 
to tell these stories to, to get the information to people. It doesn't matter what your issue is. And so that's when I realized, hey, I need to create some sort of grassroots generated media content that I can be a citizen journalist, report on my community, cultivate what I think are the most censored stories and try to get it out there and try to redirect the narratives and, and how I see fit and how I see that we're being lied to by the corporate media. Print is dead, but the pen still might. Big flicking, now it's flickering cause it's fiery. Talking about the type of heat my peeps are spit nightly. Not no spin type, BS hype, like Bill O'Reilly. This is high key, a scary time, it's like a sci fi scene. Fahrenheit 451 firefight, an alt right dream. They don't gotta burn the books, they just remove the folks who go and hunt the truth, bruh. Guess that's our future, a journalism effigy burning. And then just poof, the youth, the future generations asking what the news was. Lack of funding of attacks in public, propaganda puppets, handing bunches to back incumbents. Look, shudder every time another door shuts, more and more cuts. Daddy Warbucks, they get absorbed up. The voices of the village getting silenced Until we only get announcements from their highness One of the things that's really troubling about the media ecosystem right now Is the decline of local news And the decline of newspapers across the country is really troubling The media is a food chain which would fall apart without local newspapers And the problem is Print ads are less popular with advertisers than they used to be, and online ads produce much less revenue. I'll show you. Between 2004 and 2014, newspapers gained $2 billion in online ad revenue. Unfortunately, in that same period, they lost $30 billion in print revenue. A study of over 200 papers found that between 2003 and 2014, their number of full-time statehouse reporters declined by 35%. And that's not good, because while there are some great web outlets, some of which do cover local government, there aren't nearly enough to replace what has been lost. I was the top editor of my hometown daily, the Buffalo News, which is a typical regional newspaper in a decent-sized but not huge city. Same thing, the employment there, and of course I've watched that carefully since I left. I had a 200-person newsroom. They're probably down to something like, I'm not sure, but maybe something like 120 now. Well, when you lose that percentage of your newsroom staff, you can no longer cover everything you covered before. And I would say the Buffalo News is relatively well off compared to a lot of others. So that's a huge troubling trend, and it's not one that's going to be reversed because of some very substantial issues which have to do with the business model really being trashed essentially by the Internet and by the chain ownership, often by hedge funds, of newspapers. So that's really bad. Meanwhile, the news organizations that can focus on national politics or even global affairs, if they do it right, they can really prosper. Two community newspapers in central Illinois are shutting down. At the end of the month, the St. Joseph Leader and the County Star will stop production. News Gazette Media manages the weekly newspapers, and the company has said they're shutting down the papers because they're no longer profitable. We just came from the newsroom where we announced to the staff that the final edition of the Rocky Mountain News will be published tomorrow. It's a, a terrible 
tragedy for the paper, for everybody involved, and, and a very sad day for Denver as well. New York's hometown newspaper is shrinking, big time. The Pulitzer Prize-winning paper announcing a 50% reduction in its editorial staff today. The Daily News was the first American paper printed in tabloid form, but it will now turn its attention to online reporting and breaking news. One of the conversations among, you know, so-called alternative press and we, you know, papers, there's still more than a hundred of us across the country, is, you know, oh, it's so tough to call ourselves like all weeklies or all anything anymore, which is insane because we've been at it since the 60s or the 50s, if we're talking about the Village Voice, 1955, uh, and if we're talking about alternative media for a long time before that, we talk about what is alternative? What is this? Mean? So for us, it's like the cliche definition, which is that we cover things that aren't being covered and we cover things that are being covered, but that we don't feel are be is being covered adequately or accurately. Just in general, when we get this question, what's alternative? Why are you needed anymore? Why is an outlet like you're needed? I would be the first to say if I didn't think it was. And certainly because of the specification of news, there are some things that, you know, if you want to read about hip hop that happened in the 90s, you can just read Ambrosia for Heads all day. There's something for you. But when we're talking about overall and especially just news coverage, I would argue that those holes haven't been filled. You know, there was this time, if we were having this conversation like 12 or 13 years ago, a lot of people in the media, there was this assumption that like bloggers were going to take over everything. Bloggers are going to handle it. Oh, the newspaper doesn't have to cover the school committee. Bloggers are going to cover this. Bloggers are going to cover this. But, well, guess what? Not only does a blogger not cover, this is Boston, which is often greater Boston, they say, between like the eighth and the 11th biggest media market in the country. It's a city where there's always national press and there's just a lot of media around here. But guess what? Nobody covers City Hall, really. Uh, even the Globe and the Herald, they have people who do, but that, you know, it's not like it used to be where several reporters are stationed at City Hall. The State House does have some dedicated reporters, you know, television especially. But forget about things like school committee, even in Boston, being covered, let alone Cambridge and Somerville. We're talking about cities of you know, 100 plus and 80,000 people. Those two cities actually don't even really have a daily newspaper or barely a weekly. In fact, the uh, Somerville Journal and the Cambridge Chronicle, both are owned by Gatehouse Media, major national behemoth. They did a very common thing that they do. Uh, they pulled their reporters out into the suburbs, so they're not even located in those two cities. General election, power by general electrical power, hungry executives supplying you your next hit. That's just it. A million channels, but there's just six. That's public information, but we don't take it as corruption. A rough trend, that good old-fashioned American consumption. If we only worry about the Russians, then we're not seeing that one trick. We're plugged in, they wrote us out the script. We don't say nothing. They program what we think and how we feel. It's on the uptick. We love it. Front row seats to the Kabuki theater. That's how we choose our leaders. The smoke is spooky mirrors. That's how it usually seems to be the media. Taken from the people, run it like a VIP club. You ain't elite enough for their policy. You ain't G enough, you can probably see. Don't start the border worse when they railroad. It's all a monopoly. Work over two thirds your life to get a better future. Meanwhile, everything is owned by Rupert. Newsrooms across the country have long been accused of failing to represent the communities they cover. And as racial concerns continue to rise to the surface across the country, who is telling those stories? 
Well, of course, one of the purposes of, of the news media, and particularly of, of newspapers and, and local television stations, is to have different parts of the community talking with each other. I think there are a lot of news organizations that do take that role very seriously, less so with others. Uh, it also depends on the staff you have uh, and how aggressive they are in demanding of their editors that certain things be covered. There's obviously been this decades-long conversation about diversity in media. We have the advantage of having started new. I think if you're, you know, a Metro newspaper and it's 2003 and you look around and the staff is all white and you're going to spend the next 15 years just firing people because your business is collapsing, it's pretty hard to change those ratios. You know, we had the opportunity of starting from scratch. And I think if you're hiring entry-level reporters in 2018, it's a really diverse, it's a very natural, I mean, it's just you don't have to, it's not hard. You have to go out of your way not to have a diverse team. Different parts of the industry are, are more and less diverse. But from our perspective, everybody obviously feels like it's ethically and morally the right thing to do. But I think it's just obvious for our audience, which is the primarily American audience of people in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Like, that's a very diverse group of people. And so... The stories we cover, the stories that we want to get kind of lend themselves to having a diverse staff. The story that really crystallized this for me, though, is we have an investigative reporter, Melissa Segura, who um, won the Polk last year and did, I think, you know, one of the best investigations of the year on this incredible piece about this cop in Chicago who uh, allegedly framed dozens of men. And I think more than a dozen have now been released because of her reporting. And you know, her sources on the story was this group of the sisters and aunts and moms of these guys who were in jail, who were mostly poor Puerto Rican families in Chicago. And it wasn't like they'd been keeping it a secret. They had been for years begging the press to cover this story. And there had been a little coverage, but nobody had really taken them that serious. It was never great for me, for you neither. It ain't hard to see. was never great for me, for you neither, it ain't hard to see. I think the media certainly fails at conveying a message on what life is like for black and brown people, right? And it's even challenging for black and brown people to convey this message just properly. And I will use myself as an example. I write for a lot of different publications, New York Times, Huffington Post, um, Essence. But I will say it can be challenging when I'm writing about race and I'm writing for a mainstream publication, a white publication. And I need to be able to speak concretely. I need to be able to unpack the nuance and the layers without really focusing as much on word count. Even though I'm speaking as passionately, as I candidly as I can, the reality is it still has to get filtered through a very white lens. And I can't do much about that because there is an editorial process. Sometimes it's more intense than the other. Another aspect is that there aren't many black and blonde people that have access to these massive platforms to tell these different stories. I, I no longer believe that, oh, we simply can't find these talented people. I'm not some rare anomaly. I'm not like some, oh my gosh, where did we find this magical Negro that can write so well? There's a million of brilliant, wonderful, fantastic black and brown writers that are not only just as capable, but far better than me, that don't have access to these platforms. Like, where is that missing gap coming from? If media outlets are really serious about helping to amplify these voices to be able to tell stories from a diverse perspective, we're easy to find. Hit a hashtag on Twitter, right? And you can totally jump down that and you will find 75 million of these brilliant black writers. I'm no longer kind of believing that, oh my gosh, we just can't find them. I'm just starting to wonder how deliberate and intentional it is. 
Look, we riding front of your face, we won't be ignored now. Writers, we warriors, and we knocking the doors down. Black and brown, indigenous experiences. Stories and voices from the sources, cause we living it. More editors, less news deserts, no improved measures. Step up your group efforts. Come on. Boots on the ground, we got truth, but we need more though. So be it, we alternative and said it's a new normal. Look. They don't gotta burn the books, they just remove the writers They take our sights, then it's on sight, we set this shit on fire Newsrooms looking like birth of a nation It's time we take back the flow of information Yes, yes, incredible, incredible work once again from Silent Night and the band called Fuse Hey again, this is Manny Faces, Newsbeats producer and host Thank you for listening more on silent night and the band called fuse in a minute as i stated earlier this episode hits really close to our hearts number one because we're journalists but number two because journalism and the unfettered transmission of the truth truly is perhaps the most important defense the public has against the abuses of the powerful it's the free press that wields the incredible power to inform us all and in doing so unites and gives us the people the power and that's exactly one of the things that we try to do here at Newsbeat, to inform you through this unique weaponization of journalism and music, to expose propaganda, rectify false narratives, shine a light through all that darkness, and hopefully help correct some insanely horrible social injustices. Uh, our guest, uh, Shanita Hubbard, has made it her mission to tackle social injustice in a variety of ways, too. A passionate advocate, journalist, consultant, educator, and speaker, her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Essence, Fusion, Pitchfork, The Root, Griot's Republic, and The Guardian, among other publications. She's an adjunct professor of criminal justice at Northampton Community College in Pennsylvania, and her speaking engagements have addressed a wide range of social justice topics, including the prison industrial complex, juvenile justice reform, the connection between media, politics, crime, and society, media literacy, and the, quote, power of fake news, and hip-hop and sociology, among others. Learn more about Shanita, her journalism, and other projects. Contact her at ShanitaHubbard.com. That's S-H-A-N-I-T-A-H-U-B-B-A-R-D.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at Ms. Shanita Renee. M-S Shanita Renee, R-E-N-E-E. Margaret Sullivan is the media columnist for the Washington Post, and the former New York Times public editor and previously the chief editor of Buffalo News. A graduate of Georgetown University and Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, she was a member of the Pulitzer Prize Board from 2011 to 2012 and was twice elected as the director of the American Society of Newspaper Editors, where she led the First Amendment Committee. Sullivan has taught in the graduate schools of journalism at Columbia University and the City University of New York. You can contact her at margaret.sullivan at washpost.com or on Twitter at Sullivew, S-U-L-L-I-V-I-E-W. Now, Ben Smith is the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News and a former senior political writer for Politico. Before that, he was a columnist and blogger for the New York Daily News and started New York's first political blog, The Politicker, for the New York Observer, as well as the political site Room 8 after working as City Hall Bureau Chief for the New York Sun and as a stringer for the Wall Street Journal in Latvia. As BuzzFeed's editor-in-chief, Ben built the digital media outlet's newsroom and founded its investigative unit, among other accomplishments. You can email him at ben at buzzfeed.com and follow him on Twitter at buzzfeedben. Journalist Abby Martin is co-founder of Media Roots, a citizen journalism project that, quote, reports the news from outside of party lines while providing a collaborative forum for conscious citizens, artists, and activists to unite. 
She's a host of the investigative documentary interview series reporting on war and inequality, The Empire Files, which airs on Telesur throughout Latin America and on Free Speech TV and the Real News Network in the United States. It was recently shut down due to U.S. government sanctions against Venezuela. Empire Files has since announced a GoFundMe campaign to continue its mission. Abby is the former host of RT America's Breaking the Set, as well as a former correspondent. Learn more about Abby and her many projects at journalist A-B-B-Y Martin on Facebook, at Abby Martin on Twitter, abbymartin.org, and check out theempirefiles.tv, mediaroots.org, and its radical political podcast, Media Roots Radio, on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Chris Ferrone is an award-winning journalist, editor-in-chief of the alt-weekly Dig Boston, and co-founder of the Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism, which supports independent publications in various reporting and organizational capacities. It collaborates with partners on sustainable journalism and civic engagement initiatives and aims to empower promising muckrakers with training and professional compensation. Its mission to produce bold reporting on issues related to social justice and cultivate writers and multimedia producers to assist in that role. In other words, Chris and the Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism strive to bolster and sustain fearless, independent, investigative social justice journalism, the most important type. As if all this weren't enough, Chris is also an adjunct professor of communications at Salem State University and the author of four books, 2012's 99 Nights with the 99% Dispatches from the First Three Months of the Occupy Revolution among these. Learn more about Chris and his many projects at chrisfarah1.com. Chris, F-A-R-A-1.com. Check out Dig Boston at digboston.com. The Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism at B-I-N-J-Online.com. Contact him at farah1hiphop at gmail.com and follow him on Twitter at farah1. To learn about and hear more from our extraordinary musical artists for this episode, Newsbeats artist and resident Silent Night, and the incredible band called Fuse, check out silentnight.bandcamp.com. That's night with a K-N. And bandcalledfuse.com. And follow them on Twitter at silentnighter and at bandcalledfuse. As always, Newsbeat is brought to you by Maury Creative Studios, a growth-driven New York-based HubSpot partner agency helping companies leverage the HubSpot platform to achieve sustainable digital growth. Check them out at MauryCreative.com and grow for good. Once again, everyone, my name is Manny Faces, and on behalf of the entire Newsbeat team, a very sincere thank you again for tuning in. Remember, there's a traditional long-form cover story accompanying this and every episode, along with extended guest and musical artist bios, and much more, including some dope merch, on usnewsbeat.com. So check that out. Remember, our unique mix of social justice journalism and original hip-hop is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. So, if you enjoy what you hear, or simply wish to support independent journalism and music, please consider contributing to the cause at usnewsbeat.com support. Subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Everywhere you listen to your favorite programs, follow us on social media at US Newsbeat on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And that's it for us this time. As always, power to the people. One love. We're out.